conscience, openly praising you, knowing your love and grace in our lives, now at this moment centered around you, our holy, loving Father. With peace in our heart, our soul at rest, Father, we thank you for all that we have. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for the worship leaders that we have been led in the way that we have been led to sing to you and for you and for you alone this morning. Lord, thank you for Duncan and the gifts of preaching that you have given to him. We look forward to you and your word being taught this morning and we ask for your continued blessing on Duncan as he brings us today's message. Lord, we know there are hurting people in this family today. God, we ask that you would be with them. Lord, please heal their bodies this morning. And as we ask this in Jesus' name, we also pray this morning for Menominee and Marinette. Lord, equip the elected leaders and the volunteers in our hometown here to do your will. May their decisions be honoring to you. May they be bold to stand for the truths taught in your scripture and not be bullied by the world and its sinful desires. Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done. Lord, help us to follow your lead in all that we do each moment of every day. And in Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. By way of a bit of an aside, I typically don't say to the parents, we have some PG-rated material in the text today, so, so you might want to excuse your small children. I think probably on the reading of the text with decapitation and entrails spilling out and concubines, you kind of get the idea there's a kind of a little bit of a juicy theme here. So just to let you know, if you don't want them to hear about that, then you need to take your child out because you don't just stray away from these things because the Holy Spirit inspired them and we're not in the business of apologizing for the Holy Spirit. So we want to do that. We continue, as you just heard, to go through Second Samuel, taking this trek through the life and reign of David. The events in chapter 20 that Andy just read flow directly out of what we read last week in chapter 19. We saw then the challenge that David and the Jewish nation confront here because of this failed coup that Absalom, David's son, had failed to pull off. And so the challenge was Absalom is dead, David is still in exile, coming back this week. And so how do you manage that? Because a number of the people had been loyal to David, but a number of the people had been loyal to Absalom. And so how does all of that work, that transition? It's tricky. And as we saw last week, David does not earn high marks in handling this very difficult situation. His biggest failure, as we saw last week, is that he unnecessarily alienates the 10 northern tribes of Israel. He did that by ignoring a request that they made. They knew he was coming back, and so they said, we'd like to send representatives to come with you back to Jerusalem. That would have been an honor in that culture. David completely ignores that request, but not only that, he then, having ignored that request, goes to the two southern tribes of Judah, which is where he was from, and said, hey, how about if you go back with me? 
wouldn't look good for that. So that obviously made the northern tribes resent the, the southern tribes. There was clear favoritism on David's part here, and they don't appreciate it. They feel shut out in favor of these northern tribes, or the southern tribes, who, not coincidentally, were David's relatives. Resentment, division, very much a part of this in the mix right at this point in time. And as we said last week, David's insensitivity toward the northern tribes comes back to bite him, and that's exactly what we see here in chapter 20. The resentful 10 northern tribes impulsively decide to make their feelings known by cutting themselves away from David and the southern tribes, because this reinforces what Sheba Abikri does, bad feelings that were already there. And we know that the fragile peace that ultimately, as you just heard, is brought back together doesn't last for long because in 50 years, this same division happens again. Only this time in 50 years, after Solomon dies, it's permanent or more or less permanent in the Old Testament. So this division does take place, but not here. The author in chapter 20, part of what he's about here is he's about revealing the causes of this conflict, but also what God uses to smother this fire that David had helped ignite. The two causes for this conflict are number one, a compromised king, and number two, a worthless man. Let's look first at the author's understanding of David as a compromised king and his role in this conflict. As we'll see later, the author makes it clear that this division cannot be blamed solely on David. Another man throws the match on all of this, but David had soaked this kindling with the fuel of his past sins. The author wants us to see that without David's contribution to this, which we saw last week in chapter 19, there wouldn't have been any fire. There would have been no division. The author reveals David's fingerprints on this conflict in two ways. One, we've seen already this unnecessary alienation of the northern tribes by his act of favoritism. The second one is a more general thing that he did as the author reveals the connection between this conflict in chapter 20 and the sins in David's past that we've been looking at these last several weeks. So the this, this second cause for this conflict is implied in verse 3. This verse, initially, if you're reading it in your devotions and you're actually trying to really put some energy into your reading, it may seem like this comes out of nowhere. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with the rest of the story. If the goal of the author is simply to relate the circumstances surrounding this north-south divide, why do you bring in these concubines here? That's not contributing to that particular theme. Think about it. The opening two verses talk about this worthless man, Sheba, who leads the northern tribes to withdraw from David and Judah. But in verse 3, we get this seemingly irrelevant detail about David and his concubines. Now, to give some background, this relates back to what Absalom did during his coup that drove David out of Jerusalem. So when Absalom and his army enter into Jerusalem to seize the throne, Absalom asks his incredibly wise counselor, Ahithophel, how we're supposed to proceed now that they're here. Chapter 16, 20 says, give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines. 
whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. As we've seen, concubines were women who made up the harems of the ancient Near Eastern kings. Now, you, you could have just been wealthy and had a concubine or two, but the kings almost always had concubines, and that were the king's harem. Concubines were not given the same status as wives, but they were much more than simply mistresses. They had some legal protection and standing, and in that day, when women were often not treated very well, being a concubine was a comparatively good life. Concubines were often acquired through political alliances when you're talking about a king's concubine. For instance, a certain country wants to establish a diplomatic relationship with Israel. Well, one of the ways that that country would do that was to send to King David a lovely young woman who was probably herself connected to the royal family in that country, she would join the king's harem as a concubine. And her main purpose was to bear royal children from the king. And this was good for this other country because when that happened, that placed one of these women's children in the royal line of Israel. So it created a bond between these two countries that was blood. That was desirable also for the king to have concubines because in the ancient Near East, concubines were a symbol of the king's power and status. So David had 10 concubines that we know of that he had left in Jerusalem when he went in exile. He left them there to take care of the palace. And Absalom, through the euphemistic language here, publicly rapes them. This was a politically powerful way of the new king publicly declaring to these people who were in the midst of it and saw all this, be assured that I am your new king today because you have seen with your own eyes I've taken possession of this powerful symbol of the former king's power and status. All the, all the status and power the former king had, I, I have now. You just saw what I did, you know it. This was also an act of sinful defiance and was intended by Ahithophel, the counselor, to burn all the bridges between David and Absalom because according to the law, it was a, a horrible sin to sleep with the same person that your parents did or your father did. So the question again remains is why in this narrative about a budding civil war does the author bring in this sordid and frankly sickening detail about the aftermath of Absalom's rape of these concubines, which is what he does. Well, because the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, we know there has to be an important reason. This isn't just an arbitrary fun fact thrown in. And the reason here is not all that difficult to, concern, to discern, especially when you've read the last several chapters, and that is when the author relates this horrific account of these concubines essentially being placed in confinement for the rest of their lives, held basically as prisoners, it reminds us that this incident, like all of the others that have occurred since chapter 12 and 11 with David's sin with Bathsheba, this is just one more painful consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba. As we've seen in every chapter since David's sin is recorded, the author 
will not let us forget that. That's why he keeps revealing these many long-standing consequences that come as a result of David's sin that were painful not only to David, but also left a number of innocent people in their wake, lying on the road with their wings broken. By bringing these concubines into the story once again, that's the author's way of reminding us of these continuing consequences. We know that because when the prophet Nathan goes in to confront David about his sin, he prophesies something that's going to happen in the future. He says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this before all Israel and before the son. There you go, is prophesied this was going to happen, this terrible thing that Absalom did to these concubines. This prophecy permanently bonds together David's sin with Bathsheba with what ended up being a tragic fate of these concubines. Now, as we saw last week with sins like polygamy, which is one we mentioned, this collecting of concubines by David, and frankly, a few other people in the Old Testament who claimed to be followers of God, this is another sinful behavior that the biblical authors do not explicitly condemn, but like with polygamy, they reveal that it's wicked because of the horrific consequences that always, always, always came with concubines. You don't read a story in the Old Testament of one of the Jews having a concubine without there having some sort of negative consequence that comes with it. That's the Hebrew author's way and Hebrew narrative to say, this is a bad thing. God does not approve of this. So he's not morally neutral on this question. That's one of the ways that they communicated that as we saw with polygamy last week. One of the things that happened, of course, is this gave a powerful way of asserting legitimacy to Absalom as king, because David had these concubines. He wouldn't have had that otherwise. So it provided a way for him to show his legitimacy when he, in fact, was not legitimacy. This also, the sin of David, also resulted in the rape of these women and this lifelong confinement. If he doesn't have these concubines, they don't get raped. They don't, they're not stuck in confinement for the rest of their life. So these are horrific consequences that come as a result of him having concubines. So we're right to condemn him for this practice. And frankly, for a person who the Bible says is a man after God's own art, heart to say, how could he do this? How could he do this? Well, there isn't one answer to that question, obviously, but without excusing David, which we don't want to do, the history of God's people in the Bible and outside the Bible is filled with numerous examples of spiritual blindness, where the individual is blind to the impact of the sinful and fallen culture around them. In the ancient Near East, wealthy men had concubines, just the way it was, part of the culture. Part of the warp and woof of that culture was wealthy people. One of the perks was you had concubines. It was a wicked, evil culture in that sense. And the people in the culture, because it was the ocean they swam in, they didn't see it as sinful. Now, that does not in any way excuse that, but it's not the only time this has happened in the church. Um, think about the, the believers in the American South 
where many self-professed church-going, devout Christians and Christian leaders not only tolerated slavery, they owned slaves. Again, doesn't excuse that blindness either, but it does help us to put David's sin into a larger context. And I can guarantee you that if the Lord is still waiting to come back in 2,000 years, the church will look back on us in our culture and say, how on earth could the church have been so blind to this cultural phenom that they just bought in with? It will happen. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It's part of living in a fallen world. And unfortunately for David and especially these concubines, he doesn't see it. And it's not excusable. It's just the way it was. So the author includes this lurid concubine narrative as a way of helping us to see that David's sin with Bathsheba continues to bear rotten fruit. If David doesn't sin with Bathsheba, these concubines are not assaulted, they're not humiliated, they're not forced into this miserable, lifelong confinement. Okay, after David, a second cause for this deep north-south divide, we could simply call a worthless man. This would be Sheba, who was introduced in verse 1. History teaches us that wars and conflicts, even large ones, can sometimes be caused by a single person. At the top of any credible list of the causes for World War II is one quintessentially worthless man, Adolf Hitler. Without Hitler, there is no World War II. Certainly, there isn't any war in Europe. He was the cause, among many others. So anyway, the point is, is one person, given the right set of vulnerable circumstances, can cause a tremendous amount of damage in a society. And on a smaller scale, of course, Sheba does that here. The author says, beginning in verse 1, Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, even every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. This is a clear exception to the normal practice of the biblical authors writing Hebrew narrative where they do not make moral judgment because he calls Sheba here a worthless man. That's not very common for the author to step in and give that kind of editorial comment, but he does it here, which means that Sheba must have been an absolute loser. Some translations translate this word as troublemaker. In the original language, it's literally a man of Belial. Now, that's exact same insult that Shammai hurled at David as he was going out of Jerusalem. Belial is a Hebrew word that carried such a negative connotation that later on, Belial came to be used as a synonym or even a title for Satan. So to call someone a man of Belial was a uniquely disdainful insult. This man, today we might say, this man is a stain on humanity. Now, Sheba saw this existing tension between north and south. And rather than act for the national good and at the very least keep his mouth shut or even better, work to repair this breach, instead he exploits the hurt feelings the North had toward David and the Southern tribes. And so he announces their separation from David. He says, we have no portion in you. We have no part in you. We're not part of you. And this divisiveness is part of a 
mark of a man of Belial or any man or woman under the dark spiritual influences of the evil one. They're on the lookout, these people, for vulnerabilities among God's people that they can aggravate, frustrations they can exacerbate, tensions that they can increase, and frankly, fires that they can stoke. These people often want to be leaders but have no followers, so they gain prominence and influence during times of crisis. In the worst sense of the phrase, they never let a crisis go to waste. For them, crises are to be exploited for their own personal gain, and they're not the least bit concerned of how many other people might be hurt in that process. They're not at all concerned about others, but about themselves and how they can personally profit from the hurt of other people. We, that's Sheba. Now we know how much God hates this by a reference in the New Testament where Paul is talking to Titus. Titus was a pastoral assistant that he had sent to the church in Crete. And Crete is undergoing a lot of division thanks in part to false teachers who are going in and sowing division. And so Paul says to Titus in 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. That's really an amazing admonition because this is just short of excommunication on two warnings. So this, this would have had the same impact in many ways on this person, whoever this divisive person might be, as excommunication because they're going to be a social pariah within the church. Nobody's gonna have anything to do with them until they repent of their sin. And one important way for a church to avoid division that is often not done today is to correct those within the body who are regularly making divisive comments. A second cause of this national divide is this worthless man, Sheba. Now let's turn from the causes of this unnecessary division to the person that the Lord chooses to put down this rebellion. Just as the two main causes of the rebellion are individuals, David and Sheba, so is the resolution of this conflict found in a person that the author calls this wise woman. The author recounts that Sheba flees into a walled city. Now that's redundant because all the cities, if they were really cities, had walls. These walls were 20, 30 feet high and sometimes 10 or 12 feet wide made out of stone. These were huge structures. That's important for us to know. Sheba runs into this walled city in this town called Abel Beth Micaiah. That's where he does. And he's running and so he basically finds refuge in there. And so Joab, who's been chasing this guy, comes and does what any military person would have done when they want to get into a city that's walled, they build a siege ramp. And a siege ramp is just a mound of dirt that's piled against the outside of the wall to make it easier for the men over a period of months sometimes to somehow breach this wall. Either knock it down, find a vulnerable place, or to find a way to climb over the wall without getting killed. So Joab comes to this city, Abel Beth Micaiah, and he builds this siege ramp. It's important for us to know that sieges were really bad things. When you were laying siege to a city, one of the things you did is you kept any supplies from going in and out, including food and water. So if you were, you were being laid siege to as a city, that often had disastrous consequences because many of those people 
starved to death. And in fact, the prophecies in the prophets about Jerusalem, when they were going to be laid siege, the prophets said, you're going to be eating your children. That's how desperate you're going to be. So this is a terrible thing to, to have a siege ramp being built against you, and it was a, a really foreboding thing. But the beginning in verse 19, this wise woman says, I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it for me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now this part of the story is really a breath of fresh air in a section especially of this book where women have been treated so dismally. The concubines, of course, are horribly treated in this episode, but don't forget about Bathsheba, whose fate is well known as well. And then there's David's daughter, Tamar. You might recall that she was raped by her half-brother, Amnon, who receives no real punishment for that. And so that makes this scene where women are put in a very strong light so heartening. This city was known for producing wise counselors, and certainly prominent among them was this woman who comes up there. Doesn't have a name, just she's a wise woman woman. It was she who, when her city was threatened, boldly engages the king's top military commander and challenges him to rethink what he's doing. When Joab explains to her that all harm in the city could be avoided if you would just surrender Sheba, she announces to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. I think this is borderline humorous because she makes this bold pronouncement without conferring with any of the city officials, including the person who was gonna cut his head off. She simply pronounces her independent ruling, and that speaks to both her courage and the fact she knew she was a respected person in this community to be able to get away with something like that. Imagine Sheba's response when he hears this woman yell that his head is going to be tossed over the wall. So they finally do decapitate Sheba, which spares Joab from injuring all of these innocent people. The woman listens to the testimony from Joab and is essentially both the judge and the jury condemning this man. This is an exceptional woman whose bold action single-handedly averts a potential crisis here. We should celebrate this woman, especially in the midst of so many bad, bad things that happen to women. Now, you can't tell this story without bringing up this figure, Joab, because he plays such an important role here. And as we've seen in the past, he continues to be both a curious and a very dark figure. He's not a source of division here at all. He's graphically portrayed as a ruthless survivor, which is kind of his role throughout this part of the book. As he is in chapter 19 and so many other instances, Joab is a man God uses, but in spite of himself. That is, God uses Joab's unique skill sets and abilities at the same time as portraying him in a very unfavorable light. 
The Hebrew Bible is filled with complex or complicated characters like Joab, and the tendency is to try and flatten them out and make them less complex and easier to understand. You dare not do that. You have to take these people for what the Bible says about them, and Joab was a complex, complicated character. There's plenty of evidence here to show that Joab is a wicked person in many, in many ways. You recall that against the king's direct orders, he has Absalom, the king's son, murdered. Partly in retaliation, David publicly announces that Amasa will be replacing Joab as his new chief military commander. But it's also important for us to remember that Joab had murdered not only Absalom, contrary to David's orders, he also murdered another Jewish military commander named Abner. Abner had been a commander under King Saul. And Joab killed Abner in an eerily similar way that he kills Amasa here, with a treacherous, unsuspecting dagger to the belly. The author reveals that Amasa doesn't show himself to be a very competent commander here. David hears of Sheba's rebellion. He knows he's a military man. He knows that he has to take on this really quickly. And so he takes immediate action. He gives his new commander three days. Now, there are three parts of this army. There's the, what we would call maybe the royal guard made up of these Cherubites and the Pelethites, and they're David's personal bodyguards. But then there are these professional troops that were well-seasoned, these mighty men, but then there's this other group that were called on like the National Guard, kind of, when there was a crisis. These are the, these are the volunteer soldiers. And David anticipates this could be a real brouhaha, so he sends out Amasa to go get those other people. And so, for some reason that's unnamed, he doesn't do a good job of it. He doesn't do that. In fact, he shows up three days later in Gibeah without these people, supposedly anyway, and that's a problem. He doesn't do what David said. So, what David does is rather than give it back to Joab, who's there, he instead gives command to Joab's brother Abishai, who then goes and makes the pursuit. That's where, where we're talking about here, and let's read beginning in verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that is in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. The author gives, obviously, an unusually graphic account here. You don't see this very often. I mean, in ancient times where hand-to-hand -hand combat was just the way it was, all sorts of horribly graphic, terrible things were happening all the time with knives and things like that. This is one account where actually you have get a bit of how really gross this stuff could be. Why? Why does he put this in here? You need to, you need to ask those kind of questions because he could have very easily said, and Joab killed, killed Amasa. But he doesn't. He goes into all of this detail about spilling entrails on the ground. So why does he, why does he do that? Well, first of all, let's talk a little about what actually happened. Joab feigns a conversation with Amasa beckons him over, and without warning plunges a dagger into his abdomen, killing him. Now, specifically, Joab, it says, he allows this sword, it's really a dagger, 
to fall to the ground. And so he picks up the dagger with his left hand, which is important because it was his right hand that was the offensive weapon in hand-to-hand -hand combat. You didn't ever attack anybody with your left hand. So Joab affectionately reaches out with his attack hand to Amasa to affectionately gesture holding Abner's beard, I shouldn't say Abner's beard, I should say Amasa's beard in this friendly greeting. It was just something that was part of the culture. Amasa has no reason to suspect any danger and Joab takes the dagger that must have been in his left hand because he's grabbing his beard with his right hand and he kills Amasa with it. And the detail here is ghoulish, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. So again, why the unsavory bit of detail here? Well, it's, the reason is because the author wants to reveal or remind us again what an intimidating and lethal instrument of death that this Joab person was. With his left hand, which was not typically trained for hand-to-hand -hand combat, the left hand typically held the shield in battle, he not only struck Amasa, he ripped him open, and he bleeds out, requiring no second blow. This is what's meant in verse 12 later on when it says the author reveals Amasa wallowing in his blood on the highway. Well, it says he's dead, so he's not moving here. What this is is an expression to show that this corpse was laying in a very impressive pool of his own blood, which means he bled out very quickly, which means this is a lethal blow. All of that this grisly spectacle to communicate Joab's prowess as a military leader. Joab would be an ancient Near East equivalent of a Delta Force commander or a Navy SEAL today, and we'll see that when we get to chapter 23. It says as much. Joab is ruthless, and he's a survivor by nature of his value to David as a military commander. When he killed Abner, David didn't sack him because he needed him too badly in battle, even though this was absolutely against the king's command. And even though David had been relieved of his command in chapter 19 after Joab kills Amasa, David doesn't remove him here. Because in a time of instability, David must have assumed, I need this guy too bad. So out of his sheer competency at eliminating enemies, Joab is a ruthless survivor. Joab and how God uses him, not just here but in other places, gives us two important points of application as we close. The first is God uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes. God uses flawed, I could say deeply flawed people to accomplish his purposes. Now we take this for granted today in the secular world. Everybody has skeletons in his closet today. If you don't know what they are for a politician, just wait, it will come. That's just sadly the reality that we, we live in today. But this is also very much true in church history. One of my great heroes, the great reformer Martin Luther, if you read anything about him, he was a profane and crude man at times, and like other men in Europe in his time, he was blind too because he wrote some very hateful things about the Jews. William Carey, the founder of the modern missions movement, had a horrific family life. The first time he went to India, he abandoned his unwilling wife who was pregnant at the time. In our own day, tragic recent revelations about Ravi Zacharias and his evil double life are sadly not unique in the church. 
Now this in no way excuses any of their sinful behavior. It's simply a fact that God uses deeply flawed people sometimes to accomplish his purposes. And this gives us a tension headache sometimes because we want to believe that the only people God could use are saintly and submissive. But history often teaches a different lesson, doesn't it? That is, God is sovereign. He will use whoever he wants to use to accomplish his purposes. Sometimes these people are deeply flawed and sometimes they're not even Christians. Joab teaches us another important truth and that is it's possible to outwardly acknowledge God's rule over us and regularly disobey him. It's possible to outwardly acknowledge God's rule over us and regularly disobey him. Outwardly, Job was a loyal commander in the sense that he never tried to topple David. In broad terms, he served the king. Everybody would have said that about him. But he also picks and chooses which commands he wants to obey. If he receives a command from the king that he thinks is foolish or in some way is an undue burden on him, he vetoes it. And he does what he thinks is right. He does this again in chapter 24. It's easy for us to throw stones at Joab, but we can and are guilty of the same thing. We can easily claim Jesus Christ as our Lord and pray to him, dear Lord, but keep only those commands that seem reasonable to us. Jesus asks an incredibly sobering question in Luke chapter six in verse 46. He says or asks, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He's saying there's an inherent contradiction on the one hand of calling me Lord and not doing what I tell you because the title or the designation of Lord was not a royal title. To be Lord meant that you have lordship, and to have lordship means you have absolute authority over those who call you Lord. Many professed believers want to relate to Jesus as their savior. They know they're a sinner and they want Jesus to forgive their sin, but they don't have any real interest in relating him in real terms as Lord and master. The problem with that arrangement is that it's impossible to divide Jesus into the savior part of him and the Lord part of him. Jesus is one person. You can't cut him up and relate to him as Savior, but not as Lord. You sometimes hear people in the churches they're giving their testimony say things like, well, for years of my life I was a believer, but Jesus was just my Savior, he wasn't my Lord. Then he wasn't your Savior either. If he's not your Lord, he can't be your Savior. He's one person. In Acts 2.36, Peter preaches at Pentecost, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. If Jesus Christ is Lord and you're a believer who has been placed in Christ, he has to be your Lord. Logic's inescapable there. Near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus drives this truth home in Matthew chapter seven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The sobering thing about this is it's possible to do many things in Christ's name, even very impressive things like prophesy, cast out demons, and not be a real Christian. A real Christian is a person who, though sinful, and at times disobedience, has experienced through the gospel 
the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit, and it changes their heart's direction toward God. It changes the disposition of their heart toward God. When God forgave them of their sin, he also gave them a new heart, a new heart that Jeremiah says that God's law is written on it. That means that increasingly real believers obey God, not because of some external law out there, some rule I need to follow in order to be a good person, in order to get to heaven. No, it's written on my heart. In the new covenant in Christ, according to Jeremiah 31, the heart is miraculously changed at conversion and our desires increasingly and over time become more and more in line with God's will for us. There's an old hymn I love so much, and it says it so well. I think John Newton wrote this. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's, it just doesn't get any better than that. When a person becomes a real Christian, when they first see and behold the beauty of Jesus, which is so important, they want to obey God. What was formerly a religious duty has become more and more a willing choice. They begin to see God not as their Savior and their Lord, but also their greatest treasure, their beauty. How sad it is for people who claim to be Christians, but they live as if the great commandment doesn't apply to them. That is, they must love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Without this obedience-producing love that comes by the Holy Spirit in a genuine conversion to Christ, Christianity is just a dead rule-based religion. There's nothing superficial about it. Jesus died not just to forgive our sins, but to purchase our hearts for him and cause us to love him and increasingly out of that love, obey him with gladness. May God give us the grace to know and love Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Lord, and our treasure for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, these things are so basic and so rudimentary to what it is to be a Christian, and it's so easy for us to forget it because our Christianity becomes so formalized, so by the book, so routine, so ritual, we forget it's a relationship sometimes. And it's a relationship certainly that has obedience at the heart of it, but that obedience is rooted in grateful love for you because you've changed our hearts and you've helped us see the enormity of our sin and your great kindness and mercy as a savior who died on a cross for us and we're never the same. And Father, if there's people here today that do Christian things, that do Christian ministries, but they've never had this change of heart, I pray, Father, that you do that, and it's a miracle. I pray you do that. I pray you convert people today. Give them a heart that would see Jesus not only as Savior and Lord, but also their great treasure as their beauty that they cherish and love. Father, help all of us to be that. And for those who are Christians, but who frankly have just worn away, God, renew this truth, this glorious truth of the great commandment and of what you do, miraculously do, in the heart of a person who's genuinely converted to Christ.
Keep us from being those people who, on the one hand, make profession, but don't do what you say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.